You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are in the book of Acts. We just started a new series last week. We're going to go through the first 10 chapters of Acts as the Holy Spirit is setting the stage for the mission that the church is to accomplish. Today's theme is one of waiting. Now, I know that's a hard concept for most of us. And so let me ask, are you impatient like me? Well, I'm waiting for your hand. Just kidding, just kidding. Okay. One, one honest person in the back, back there. <laughs> I don't like traffic. I don't like waiting on elevators. I don't like going to the store where somebody in front of me decides the good way to pay is with a check and they don't have a pen. <laughs> have you ever said this, maybe even under your breath, hurry up. <laughs> you ever said that? And I know that patience is a virtue. It's one of the fruits of the spirit and it's very convicting. Any of you like that? There's something on your horizon. It's an opportunity that's set before you. Maybe it's something you're excited about, something that you've been waiting for. Well, you're ready to get to work, right? Are you like that? Are you a doer? Like, just tell me what you need me to do. Get out of the way because I'm going to get it done. What I don't like is a four-letter word, wait. Wait. Ugh. It's a word that Jesus uses, which means I'm wrong. So what we see here in the book of Acts, we're in chapter one, is that people have been waiting for Jesus for a long time. If you're new to church, we're going to do the Bible in one minute. So God made us. We sinned against him. The promise came because death came into human history. The promise that came that Jesus would come. How long did they have to wait for Jesus to come? Well, thousands of years. It's a long wait, right? A whole lot longer than 2G or dial-up used to be. I mean, this is serious wait. And then Jesus comes. He lives without sin. He dies for our sin. He rises from death. We see in the opening pages of Acts that he appears for 40 days, evidencing his resurrection. And then he tells them, here it is. Here's your mission. You're be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I've got a global mission for you, something huge for you to do. You've been waiting thousands of years. Now go tell everyone about me, but wait. Waiting is hard, right? How many of you are students? School's not out for another five months. <laughs> Waiting is hard. Or maybe you're engaged to be married. You're not yet married. You've got to wait. Or you want to have a kid. You're trying to have a kid. Maybe you're pregnant. Or maybe you've had a kid and that kid won't sleep. Just wait. <laughs> it's very hard to wait. Jesus gives them the whole purpose for their existence. You are going to glorify me by being my witness in the world, but first wait, because I will send the Holy Spirit to empower you to be my presence, my mission for my glory. So they've got to wait. 
Well, that's the early church. What do you do when you're waiting? How many of you want to just plow forward like, I'm not going to wait. I'm just going to go and do. And you make a mess of it. You do it wrong. You have to go back and try to fix it. And if you do that with your relationships, it's, it's frustrating. It's, you get bitter. You can get defensive. What are they going to do? Set before them is the biggest mission in the history of the world, the one that God's people have been waiting for for thousands of years. Jesus has risen from death. Go tell the world. They have to wait. What are they going to do while they wait? Well, here's what we read. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were, here's the list of the disciples, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Let me say this. Here's the list of the remaining disciples. Isn't that last guy bummed that his name is Judas? There were more than one Judases that were in the 12 disciples. There's Judas Iscariot, and there's this Judas. Aren't you bummed if you're the second Judas? What's your name? Judas? Oh, we've heard about you. No, 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 no. I'm the other Judas. If he went to a conference and he wore name tags, it says the other one. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus dies for sin, rises from death, appears for 40 days, proving that he has conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell. Jesus then commands the biggest mission in the history of the world, tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit's power. And in that time, they do three things that are good for us to learn from. They gather, they pray, they continue to prepare the leadership. Now, we've already made note that there are just 11 disciples who gathered. That's 11 out of the original 12 because Judas Iscariot has already taken his life. But here's what's really curious. Who else is there? Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers. They have gathered with the early church to worship Jesus, her son, their big brother, as creator, Lord, God, Savior, sinless King in Christ. Now, these are devout Jewish people who know that if you were to worship anyone other than the God of the Bible, you could be put to death. They've got to get this right. So how many of you are mothers with sons? How many of you mothers would not publicly worship your son as a sinless deity? <laughs> well, Mary does. And if that isn't a bold enough statement as to the truth of who Jesus is, here are his brothers. There are two places in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers are listed. 
And there are four brothers mentioned in the New Testament. It also says in that same place that he had sisters. That's plural, meaning more than one. So Jesus is the oldest. He's the firstborn. If I need to explain that to you, you've got to go back to something very remedial. He had no earthly father. But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, they had normal marital relations. They had at least four more boys and at least two girls. And here, the boys worshipped Jesus, their big brother, as God. How many of you have a big brother? (laughs) How many of you, if you had to choose between your brother being God or being Satan... You would say, he's a lot closer to Satan. (laughs) How many of you would not stand up and say, my big brother is without sin? You probably roomed with him. You know better. Now, to be clear, during his earthly life, Jesus' family thought he had lost his mind. Hey, mom, where's Jesus? Oh, he's out preaching, teaching, water skiing without a boat, declaring himself to be creator, savior, Lord, and God. Mom, do you think we should go get him? Yes, I do. And we're going to put him in his room, lock the door so others cannot get to him. That's what his family thought about him until he rose from death. And then Mary and Jesus' brothers decided, oh, he's God. He conquered death. We saw him risen. He is who he says he is. So James and Jude, two of Jesus' disciples, go on to become pastors. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he goes on to write a book of the Bible. Jude, a pastor, also goes on to write a book of the Bible. And here they are, part of the early church. Worshiping Jesus as God. Why do they do that? Because he is God. So they gather together. And I want you to see that we do the same. We gather as a big group on Sunday for worship. We gather in small groups throughout the week, including Sunday mornings with Sunday school, but Bible studies and other ways on During the week, God's people are gathering together. So the early church would discover what the New Testament book of Hebrews declares. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. In other words, they would find strength and encouragement from each other. Now, here's what's interesting. We'll see in just a moment that the disciples numbered about 120. The interesting part is that if you were to go over to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll summarize it for you. After Jesus rose from the death and he appeared to crowds of people during those 40 days, some upwards of 500 at a time. Now, we know that he appeared to others after his resurrection. The gospel and the book of Acts declare 
11 different occasions after the resurrection that Jesus appeared to people. We know on that one occasion, at least 500 at a time. That means that hundreds, maybe even thousands, saw Jesus risen from death. But how many people joined the early church and gathered as a church? About 120. That means that there were many who had the evidence of Jesus' resurrection who were unwilling to turn from their sin, trust in him, and join the church. It's not always that the mind is unconvinced. It's just that the heart is unwilling. About seven years ago, a research firm conducted a study on those who are unchurched or former churched, ages 18 to 44, the question was, what are your primary objections to Christianity? About 85% of those polled said, there is credible witness that Jesus was God and rose from death, but I'm not a Christian because I want to do what I want to do. Things have not changed. Jesus rose from death. Many see him. Only a few follow him. They gather together. We gather together. Where else are you going to hear about a loving, giving, forgiving God who comes to us in human history through Jesus Christ to establish a love relationship with us? Where else are you going to hear about all the promises and provisions of this good God? So God's people need to gather. Do you see that? And what else do they do? They pray. This is real convicting, isn't it? He's telling 120 people who don't have a map and don't have an airplane to reach the nations. They've got work to do. And they're not wasting their time. They're investing their time in prayer. And it says that their prayer was constant. That means it was ongoing. It was integrated into their every day and every moment. Now, just praying alone isn't enough because God wants to work through his people. So his people need to get to work. But just working without praying? Well, that's no good either because we could pick the wrong work. We could do it in the wrong way at the wrong time. We could make a mess of things. And so praying precedes working. Praying precedes doing. I want you to see that the time they spent praying, those 10 days, it was not wasted time. It was invested time. How many of you, you don't pray for much, but if you do pray, you don't pray for an extended period. They're praying nonstop for 10 days. Now, let me say this about prayer. Prayer is a miracle. And I hope you never lose sight of this. Prayer is an absolute miracle because God who is holy and sinless and the creator of everything invites us sinful, selfish creatures into his presence. It's miraculous. How many of you maybe have said, I, I've never seen a miracle? Well, if you've prayed... You've participated in one. 
I'm never certain how all of this works, but I'm so blessed that it does, that somehow I can speak and I can take requests and fears and needs and frustrations and longings, and I can communicate those to a loving, living God who's made me with a soul so that I can be filled with the Holy Spirit and belong to him. All of this is a miracle. And it's made possible, friends, only through Jesus. You may say, well, other religions have prayers that they pray. Yeah, but their prayers do not get beyond the roof in that place because you need a mediator. We need someone to connect us to God, someone to connect this world to its creator, to connect this fallen physical world to that flawless spiritual world. That's Jesus. He's our mediator. So what the early church realizes is Jesus has gone to heaven, but he's promised he's not going to abandon them. He would never leave them nor forsake them so they could still talk to him through this amazing miracle of prayer. And he's available. He's willing to hear and answer those prayers. So they're gathering praying and they're praying before they're doing it's preparing them for their working now let me say this they're not just praying that God would do something one of the one of the great misnomers of prayer is to think that the primary purpose of prayer is to get God to do something the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do something but it's to allow God to do something with us. It's not to move God, it's to move us. It's not to change God, it's to change us. It's not to tell God something he doesn't know. It's for God to tell us something that we don't know. It's not to change God's heart, it's to change our heart. So this prayer is not to get Jesus to do something, not to get the Holy Spirit to do something, It's to get God's people in alignment and agreement with Jesus and the Holy Spirit what they want us to do. So how many times do you start praying, God, do this, do this, do this, and you realize over time that God uses prayer to change you? God, I'm sorry that I'm bossing you around. I'm sorry that I think I see everything. I'm sorry that I think I know everything. God, I'm sorry I don't trust you. God, I'm sorry it looks like I'm sitting on a throne and you're there to serve me. All of a sudden, you start realizing, man, prayer is changing me. And prayer is inviting God to change us. How many of you, when you've prayed, you realize God's the same, but you're the one who needs to change? Do you see that? So they're gathering, they're praying. The next thing we see is that the leaders are following Scripture. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. 
with the payment he received for his wickedness, the next verse, Jesus bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, and he quotes two Psalms. May his place, speaking of Judas, be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So they have a crisis of leadership. Leadership transitions in ministry are always hard. This one is particularly hard. Jesus picked 12 guys and one of them betrayed him, was completely complicit in Jesus' murder. His name was Judas Iscariot. He went out and killed himself. The gospels say that he hanged himself. Here we get some additional information that his insides burst to his outside. Now, either that means he hanged there long enough that his body fell or that it was bloated and burst. Either way, it's gruesome. But now think about it. At this point, Christianity is not a few billion people as it is on earth today. It was only 120 people. They're all gathering in one room. Jesus has returned to his heavenly kingdom. Of the 12, Judas has killed himself. This makes for a difficult transition, right? Someone needs to say something. Someone needs to do something. That someone is Peter. He is a human leader. God works through leaders. He works through political leaders. In the family, he works through the parents. In the church, he works through pastors and elders. Here, he's working through apostles. God works through leaders. We're all sinners, but God still works through a human authority. And here, they've got a real crisis. They need a leader, and it's Peter. They never voted for Peter to lead but Jesus appointed him. Have you ever noticed every time that the disciples are listed in the scripture, including the one we just read, who's mentioned first? Peter, every time. Why? He's the first among equals. He's the leader. And so he steps forward. He steps up and he's to lead the people. How is he going to lead them? This is very important, very critical. He's going to lead them by following Scripture. Leaders follow Scripture. Godly leaders follow God's Word. That's how it works. So Peter doesn't just stand up and say, well, let's take a poll. Let's take a vote. What do you guys think? And, And plus, there are all kinds of sources we can look at There may be good information in social sciences and in the business world and in culture. People may have their own ideas, but ultimately everything rises and falls on coming back to the Bible. It's asking, what has God said? I want you to see, they start with prayer, then they move to Scripture. Prayer is how we talk to God. Scripture is God talking to us. So in prayer, we're talking to God and he he uses prayer to change us. And then we open up scripture and it's submitting ourselves to 
the authority of God's word so that we might then know how to walk out God's plan for our life. And what Peter says is that scripture had to be fulfilled. We're talking about God's word, right? We love God's word. We believe God's word. We trust God's word. We study God's word. We memorize God's word. We come back to God's word. Here's what Peter's doing. They have to decide how to replace Judas. They go back to the Bible. That's where we always need to go back to. God's word. Again, that's exactly what Peter does when he said the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. Now, he quotes the two Psalms. And Peter says then, those are David's voice. They come through David's words, voice, if you will. But who's behind it? The Holy Spirit. David's voice, the Holy Spirit's words. Peter continues, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism, John the Baptist, to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, Then they prayed. Oh, what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying for God to lead them to the right one. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots And the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. The casting of lots, by the way, was not just some random chance kind of thing. It was was understood biblically as a way that God is going to show them. So Matthias is picked. The team is now complete. Interestingly, nothing more is ever recorded about Matthias in Scripture. So he doesn't play necessarily a prominent role. Maybe he's one of the more humble guys on the team. However, more importantly, everything is now set for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Everything is now set for their mission to the world. In closing, let me pull back from this story just a minute and think about this with me. Who's the person doing most of the speaking in Acts 1? It's Peter. And especially today, who's he mostly speaking about? It's Judas. So let's look at these two men side by side for a moment. They both have Jesus as their pastor. Well, that's like amazing. They both had the other disciples as their small group. That's pretty cool. They've both been given the same mission to share the news of Jesus paired with others. You know, they were sent out in twos, 70 disciples were. They both got to eat with Jesus. They both got to travel with Jesus. They both got to listen to Jesus. They both had Jesus pray over them, and they both failed 
Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the authorities, was seemingly plotting this Jesus' demise for a long time. Judas was actually a fake disciple. But what about Peter? Remember after Jesus' arrest? On three occasions, he was asked about his association with Jesus. And all three occasions, he vehemently denied even knowing who Jesus was. So Judas and Peter both failed Jesus. So what's the difference between the two of them then? It's not that they failed. It's how they responded to the failure. You see, once Jesus rose from death, Peter heard Jesus is alive. What does he do? He runs to the tomb. Eventually, Peter and the risen Jesus have a meeting. Peter is so... uh, devastated by his sin, but what does Jesus do? He forgives Peter. He's like, Peter, that's the whole reason why I went to the cross, so that you could be forgiven. I forgive you, Peter, but if you love me, feed my sheep. The day comes. Peter stands up And he feeds the sheep. He says, you know, the scripture says in Psalm, this is the way Jesus wants us to do it. He's feeding the sheep by teaching them God's word. What an amazing picture of the gospel that is. The difference between Judas and Peter is that one brought their sin to Jesus and the other brought their sin to the grave. That's a heavy word but a hopeful word because you're not dead. Whatever sin you've committed, today is a great day. Just bring it all to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me and you me like you did Peter to tell other people that you're a God who forgives and extends grace And that may my miserable story tell of how wonderful you are. And that right there is the heart of Christianity. So the question is not, are you going to act like Judas or Peter and fail Jesus? Because we will. The question is, will you respond like Judas or will you respond like Peter? I invite you to Jesus to be forgiven, to be used for God's mission, to be restored for God's plan for your life. As long as you're alive, it's not too late. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.